How you guys doing today? Uh, so I, I want to I want to talk a little bit about uh, what it's like. I don't know if you guys have ever met anybody who is famous. You know, anybody ever like met a celebrity or anything? Just run into somebody, a couple. Who who got, who have you guys met? Burt Reynolds. Reynolds. Awesome. Okay. Kenny Kenny Chesney. Okay. How about who? Ricky Carmichael. Who's that? You, come on now. <laughs> Kurt Cameron and Red Buttons. Okay, so um, that's, a, that's a good cross-section. Um, I've met a few people in my life, um, and, and we all have different reactions, right, to, to famous people. I am I'm really bad at it. I go into total fanboy mode. Um, I cannot speak. I cannot think straight. One morning, I was having coffee at, at my favorite coffee shop in, in Chicago, and Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, who lived in our neighborhood, he came and he sat down. That's what he looks like. He came and he sat down outside, and I'm sitting there looking at him, and I'm going, that's Billy Corgan right there. And I was frozen. I was like, I couldn't get up. I, didn't, I wouldn't have known what to say to him. The opposite end of the spectrum is, like, is uh, my wife. She's a pro at meeting people. She just treats them like people, right? And so actually, when she was in Haiti, she went on the global outreach trip to Haiti earlier this year. We didn't really publicize it, but she's hanging out one day in the hotel uh, or, or in one of the outings, and a guy named Rain Wilson, who plays Dwight Schrute from The Office, shows up with his son. And he's just hanging out, um, and she just goes up and starts talking to him, just like he's a normal person, finding out what he's doing there, and just, just chilling out. Uh, she also, one morning, was working out in our gym, and she starts texting me, and she says, um, hey, I think David Ross from the Cubs works out in our gym. And I'm like, okay. And, she's, and then she, I have to... Uh, kind of put her out there for this. She actually took a little picture of him riding the stationary bike. I zoomed in, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's him. And, and she just walked up to him. You know, and I'm like, you did what? And she just walked up to him, just treat him, like a, treat him like a normal person, right, and just started talking to him. She's a pro. But there are some times and there's some people that when you meet them, it is really hard to keep your stuff together. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that. I had a friend of mine who worked at a, a really big uh, sports bar in Dallas back in the 90s. And it was a really famous uh, bar, a big chain uh, and restaurant. And so he said, the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys guys used to come in there all the time. And he's like, I would just serve them. So one night, three people walk into the, the bar, uh, restaurant. It's um, Michael Irvin and Emmett Smith and a third person. And he goes over to the table to serve them. He's going to be their server. And he was like, dude, he's like, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, they're just people. They're just people. I just took the order. The third person is this guy, Michael Jordan. <laughs> and he said, Jordan? He's like, I just couldn't do it. He was like, there was, a, there was an aura coming off of him. And he's like, I could hardly talk to him. Last story. I had a friend of mine, uh, uh, this is uh, early 2000s. Huge U2 fan. Um, they're on tour to uh, they're on tour to support their their latest record, and he goes down to the United Center to stand in line 
because they had this uh, area of the arena where you could get general admission and you get really close to the stage. My friend's a huge fan. So he goes down, he waits in line. All of a sudden, in the middle of uh, waiting in line, these, these black SUVs pull up. And out comes the band. And they hop out, and they just start talking to people. And he's standing there, and they're getting closer, and, and Bono is getting closer to him and closer to him and closer to him. And my friend just yells uh, something out that kind of triggered something, kind of a, a, a common, common frame of reference. And Bono comes over to him, stops and comes over to him and starts talking to him. And he just has a conversation with, with Bono from U2. And he said, I'm talking to him. He said, I'm doing the best I can. I'm playing it cool. He said, but inside my jeans, he said, my right leg just started shaking. <laughs> and he said, I'm, I'm talking to him, but I can hardly stand up because my leg is just trembling uncontrollably. And, I, uh, you know, again, for, for those of you guys who maybe, like, don't have a frame of reference, uh, this was the tour for uh, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. That was the, the album cover. And this is the way the, the album started. I don't know if you guys remember this track, but it goes like this. Right. Anybody remember that record? Yeah, good, good, good record. They actually shot a live DVD, concert DVD, that night from Chicago. My friend got into the general admission section, and in one part of the DVD, like, you can see him up in the front row, and he's just, like, totally, uh, totally freaked out, totally loves it. I start, this, I start this way today because, look, we're talking about this guy named Moses, and to put it lightly, Moses meets somebody pretty famous, right? Just say yes. He's hanging out in Midian, tending sheep, when God, we're told, shows up in the shrub, right? In the bush, calls his name, Moses, Moses, Moses responds. And we've been looking at this interaction between God and Moses. We've been looking at what this, this short little episode that's really just like a chapter and, and just some change, what it says about God, and it says so many profound things about God. We've been looking at the idea of, of what does it mean that God chooses the, the shrub, this lowly shrub, to appear in? And what does it mean that he appears to a guy named Moses who is in exile because he's murdered somebody? And what does it mean that God, when he says, God says, I want to set my people free, he looks at Moses and says, okay, so you go. You know, what does it mean that God is a sending God, a partnering God, and that he appears to everyday people in everyday places? Today, I want to look at the next little section of, of text. If you have your Bibles and you want to uh, turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, we're going to be looking at just a few verses here um, and, and unpacking uh, the significance of what happens next. So the text reads like this, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites, you know, Moses is Jewish. Suppose I go to my people and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? 
Then God says, said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Then he says again, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So we're talking today about God's name. And you have to understand that there have been references to God up to this point in the Bible. There are references to the name of God in Genesis. But the names as they appear in Genesis are different from this name. They are much more generalized. They're sort of like like job titles. And so they say things that like, this is the God of of hosts, the the Lord of heavenly hosts, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord who takes care of me. And it's always this combination of a generic name for God, usually in in Hebrew, Elohim, um, and then something that God does. But here, this, this, is God's personal name. It's unlike any other name or title in the entire Old Testament. And God says it. It's my name. Yahweh is my name. He says, this is what you're supposed to call me. So uh, I want to take our time together to explore what does it mean that God gives us his name, his personal, real name, and and what that name means for us. Because I think it means something really, really, really powerful and really, really important that we need to hear this morning and that our world needs to realize as well. So I want to start by just saying, in general, what do names do? What do they do for people? And the first thing they do is they, they identify us specifically. Eric Case, you know, my family name, my surname, identifies me specifically. Now, you know, it's, there are, uh, Google it, there are other Eric Cases in the world, but I am one of them, you know, and it identifies and it says exactly who I am. And as I said, there are other names for God in the Old Testament, but they are much broader. The Lord Most High, that is a a title and a name for God, but it is very, very general. And if you actually looked at ancient uh, ancient books and and scrolls from this time when the Bible was being uh, written and assembled, you would find other names that read very close to the Lord Most High. Let me just tell you, no other scroll that I at least have, have known that's been found says any, any other God named Yahweh. So it identifies us out of everybody else. This is who I am. They also uh, connect us to a community. If I tell you my name, it probably means that I'm willing to have you know me at some level. Am I right? I mean, let me put it this way. If you walk up to me on Sunday morning and you're like, hey, I'm Joe Smith, and I'm like, nice to meet you, and I turn around and walk away, 
well, what does that say? <laughs> you know, uh, it says I probably am going to be looking for another job. But a name starts to connect us relationally. It starts to say, I'm willing to be known by you and vice versa. And so the fact that God gives Moses a name says, you know what? I am willing to be connected to this community. And when you're connected in community, I don't know about you guys' experience with community, but community requires vulnerability. And community doesn't happen for a long, long time before you risk being hurt. Anybody ever been like dinged by community? And so the fact that God says, I'm willing to align and connect myself with this community says something very, very powerful about God. In fact, uh, if you look, we looked at this text a couple weeks ago where it, when God says, I'm aware of my people's suffering, in verse 7, and he says, uh, some translations say, I am concerned about that suffering. Well, the Hebrew word there is yada. And yada is a, is a word that denotes knowledge and awareness, but not abstractly. It means by experience. And so God says, I am willing to experience the suffering of my people. So names connect us to community. Community means vulnerability and a connectedness. And then the last thing that names really do, uh, they communicate what I would say our essence. They communicate really who we are. Now, the more you know somebody, and this is really not about me, but if you know me well enough, when you say Eric Case, it says something specific. You know, it says something about, well, if you know me, what's Eric's personality like? What is the essential elements of of, of who Eric is, if Eric shows up at my door, what am I going to get? Probably a lot of, you know, Lord of the Rings references and too much music talk and so on and so forth. But if I know your name, the same thing goes, you know? If I know your name and I know who you are, your name tells me your essence, who you really are at your, at your core. And so... By the way, when Moses says, you know, hey, what if I go to God? What if I go to my people and I say, God sent me to, to you? And they say, and they say, well, tell us his name. That's what he says. What if I go to the Israelites and they say to me, well, what's his name? They're asking, what is his essence? What kind of God are we getting? And they could look back on, on Genesis and they could go, well, we have these, these broad names for God. We have Elohim, we have the Lord Almighty, we have Jehovah Jireh, you know, the God who provides and all these things. There's an inquiry that says, what is the essence of this God? So when God says, I am who I am, Yahweh, can you start to see the conundrum that Moses gets into? And if you can't, 
let's unpack a little bit of the actual name of God. So we have a slide here. Um, Yahweh is, is essentially, in Hebrew, it's pronounced this, Eya Asher Eya. Why don't you say that? Eya Asher Eya. You have just pronounced the name of God. His proper, personal, real name. In English, because Hebrew does not have vowels, it is Y-H-W-H. That's the way we would spell that in English. And uh, we actually don't absolutely know how it's pronounced because Hebrew is such an ancient language. But yes, as best we can guess, that is pronounced in English, Yahweh, Yahweh. So we add the vowels and we think, okay, this is kind of what we think it is. Um, If you were to really kind of put it into modern American, Western Christian stuff, uh, to really spell it the way a Jew would spell it, you would leave out the O and you would just put a dash because the name of God is supposed to be revered. And so, you know, if you were just writing the word God, you would just put a dash to show, look, this name is, is a little bit unlike any other name. So that's where it starts. But let's look at the actual translation of the Hebrew. These are the possibilities. Eya asher eya can mean I am who I am, or it can mean I will be who or what I will be, or it can mean I will be what I cause to be, or it can mean I will be who I am. Which again, if you're Moses, you're kind of like, man, that's cool that I know the name of God, but that name is really confusing. You know, and I just think again, like just put this in our terms, like just really, really engage with this. If you're Moses and God has said, look, I want to set my people free, you know, and and God said his name, wouldn't you be hoping that God would be like, yes, my name is God like the Warhammer, Because he's about to go up against Pharaoh, the, the most strongest empire, military empire in the region of the day. And can but God is like, hey, I will be who I am, which is kind of like, all right, man, that's cool. It's very poetic. But so what does this say about God? Well, before we go too much further into this, I want to unpack uh, a little bit more of the journey of the name. So over time, because the Jews got the idea and, and God's people got the idea that, look, you should not treat this name like any other name. The Ten Commandments actually say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't throw it around. Don't use it to, to, to just get what you want. And so over time, they really took this seriously. And so they stopped even referring and pronouncing Yahweh. And so they began to just refer to it as Hashem, which just means the name. And you could not even say the name Yahweh. You couldn't. Because to say it meant to somehow introduce it into something less than special. And we wanted to reserve the, the best special places for the best special God. Uh, Just so you know, like over time, eventually it got got to the point where one time a year, the name of God would be pronounced publicly. It was on something called the Day of Atonement, probably the biggest day of the Jewish year, 
when uh, the, the high priest in the temple would, would make atonement and talk about the sins, all the sins that have been created by, by, that have been committed by the people. And they would essentially remind people of God's goodness. And they would confess sins and they would say, okay, like we've done this thing. We've got to remember that God is good and he forgives us if we acknowledge our sins. And then at the, at the apex of that festival, the high priest would come out and he would make a pronouncement that actually said the name of God. And at that, at that point, everybody who was present would bow down, which is really cool, but it's even more cool when you realize that, that, that mostly uh, God's people were not permitted to bow down except at that time. That's how special the name had become. You don't say it, you don't speak it, you don't write it, uh, except on very special prescribed occasions, right? Now, let me just show you uh, something that happens. Um, there was another tradition that, uh, that arose in Judaism, and it's, it, it is based out of this one little line in the Old Testament, the, uh, the almost the last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. It said this, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. What, what arose based on this scripture as the rabbis and as the spiritual leaders just unpacked it and they studied it, they, they came to the conclusion that one day, yes, God will be king. There will be a, a king uh, and he will be ruling in the same manner, identically with God, as God. And they said that when that happens, based on the scripture and the way they interpreted it, that that's when you could pronounce the name of God freely. You didn't have to wait anymore for the Day of Atonement. They studied this scripture and they said, one day God is going to be king on the earth. And when that day happens, anybody can say the name. Until that time, you have to use a slightly more generic name for God, Adonai, Elohim, but you don't use Yahweh until God is king over all the earth. In John chapter 14, Jesus is arguing with uh, some, some people who are taking him to task over something that he said. And, and uh, Jesus starts off this way. He says, he's talking to these people. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, the day that Jesus is teaching and living and healing. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham is a distant ancestor at this point. And these folks reply, hey, you're not yet 50 years old. They said to him, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them, very truly, I tell, tell you that before Abraham was, I am. So the first thing that happens is that if you cannot pronounce the name of God until God is king, until the Messiah comes, what has just happened? Jesus has just said, God is king now. Because I just pronounced, Jesus says, I just pronounced the name of God. So he's declaring the era where God is king over the earth has started now. So the name 
is a special, special, special thing. And if we pause for a second and we go back to that question of like, so what do names do? And if names, if they tell us something about a specific human being, if they connect us to community, and if they tell us essentially who we are, what can we know about Yahweh? Because again, the definition is a little fuzzy. I will be who I will be. I will be who I cause to be. I will be, there is, yeah, something profound in it that says that God is somehow declaring, look, I am the ground of being. I am the ground of all creation, all existence. It is in this name. Okay, that's awesome. But can we go a little bit further? So this is the way I would sort of say it, uh, that the name and what's going on with Moses, because look, he's the ground of being. He is the, uh, he is the existence of everything. And here he is, where? In the shrub. I will be who I cause to be, but I'm hanging out in the shrub. So I would say it this way, or I would start to unpack it this way, that the name starts to get at this idea. It is power and intimacy. It is a ground of being in, in here, in here, right? It is eternal strength and relational vulnerability. I will connect myself with, your, with this community. And trust me, if you ever read the Old Testament, God tells you his community hurts him. He says it. My people have hurt me. And it tells us that there is this universality to God. He is everywhere. He has created the universe. He is Elohim, the Most High, and he is also Yahweh. Yahweh, one God. So if we start to talk about that, we start talking about the concept and the word paradox. We start talking about the idea of a paradox, which essentially is holding two seemingly contradictory things together. And a paradox basically provokes you to think, how can these things both be true. They cannot. So let me walk you through. We're, we're probably more familiar with paradoxes in our lives than we think. So I'm just going to walk you through a couple famous ones. The first paradox is called the friend paradox. It reads this way. Your friends have more friends than you do. Think about it. Anybody ever heard the friends paradox? Your friends have more friends than you do. Now, if you think about it for just a second, you go, wait a minute, no, that's probably not true because my friends are my friends and it probably just is a zero-sum game, right? But it's actually not. Sociologists actually studied this, probably, you know, I don't know, wasting somebody's money. And, and he said, look, actually what happens is that most of us are friends with somebody who is more sociable than we are. And so that more sociable friend will have a larger friend circle than, uh, than us. And, and because, you know, I'm sure he was paid to do this, they actually created a math formula for it. It looks like this. 
Do not ask me to unpack it. I will not. I cannot. That's the friend's paradox. Let me show you another paradox. This one's called the card paradox. The card paradox works like this. The sentence on the other side of this is true. Then you turn it over. The sentence on the other side of this is false. So is it true or is it false? We've already been wrapping our heads around this like the, the musicians and the tech guys this morning. Like, no, you can't. This is also called the liar's paradox because of the falseness. You've actually seen the liar's paradox played out in film. So I'm just going to show you the liar's paradox. Inhale this, but do not touch. I smell nothing. What you do not smell is called iocane powder. It is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid, and is among the more deadly poisons known to man. the poison the battle of wits has begun it ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead but it's so simple all I have to do is divine from what I know of you are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies now a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given I'm not a great fool so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you but you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision then? <laughs> not remotely, because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them, as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! I won't spoil the outcome, but that is the liar's paradox. Are you lying to me or are you telling me the truth? What is true? What is false? And we are dealing with the God of the paradox. How can both of these things be true? How can God be eternally powerful, strong, the ground of all being? and be in the shrub? How can he be holy and intimate? How can he be all of these things in tension? And you have to understand that the paradox of God is not like that he switches modes so that he says, oh, sometimes I'm going to be holy and intimate. Sometimes I'm going to be... What the paradox demands is that God is both of these things all of the time, that they are essentially his nature. The, uh, Jesus and the early Christians uh, began to unpack this idea, and you see it played out in the scriptures. So let me read one more verse past the verse in John 8. Uh, Jesus, again, is having this altercation with people. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad 
Uh, they say, you are not yet 50 years old. They asked him, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And what Jesus does that gets him into real trouble is he actually claims to be God. Not just to be God's son, not just to be somehow an expression of God, but he says that, and then this is how they respond. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself away, slipping away from the temple grounds. You see, you don't get stoned if you declare yourself essentially the Messiah. You know, even though in a way that's what Jesus is doing. He's like, look, that prophecy in Zechariah 14, guess what? I can say the name of God now, which means God is now king. But that's not a stoning offense. A stoning offense is when you claim to be God. And when he says, I am, that's what they hear. How can the God of the universe be in this rabbi from Galilee? Maybe it's because the God of the universe has a habit of appearing in unexpected, even humble places. And he's the God of the paradox. And so the first Christians, they, they kept trying to unpack this, and Jesus was trying to hint and help. So in John 15, 4, he tells his leaders, his disciples, this. He says it this way, that uh, remain in me, as I also remain in you. So Jesus, who has claimed to be God, is now saying, and look, I am now in you. And when Moses encounters Yahweh, where does the voice come from? In the bush. In the shrub. And Jesus says, you got to remain in me. In John 14, same little inner group of speeches, he says it this way. I will ask the Father. He'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. And then Jesus goes on. He says, it's the spirit of truth. And then he says, but you know the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, for he lives with you and will be where? In you. So the fullness of God, which we would say as, as, as Orthodox Christians, that is the full expression of God. And Jesus says, that's going to be in you, just like God, Yahweh, was in the shrub. And then you see this trying to communicate, again, who is Jesus? What is he, uh, what is he here to do? A guy named Paul writes to a church in Colossae. He says it this way in, in Colossians chapter 1. He says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And where does Jesus say he dwells? In us. All the fullness of God. Not just the fullness that can fit inside the shrub. Not just the, the fullness that can fit inside my six foot one and change frame. How much of the fullness? All the fullness. And then in chapter 2, he says this again. For in Christ, all the fullness of God, all the fullness of Yahweh lives in bodily form. And Christ lives where? In us. So we're talking about the paradox that God, Yahweh, eternally powerful, 
We're talking about the fact that he appears in this lowly form of a shrub, but actually, you know where else he appears? He appears in the lowly form of Eric Case. And he appears in the lowly form of each and every one of you. All the fullness. Not some of it. Not just the stuff that'll fit inside you. All the fullness. Now wrap your head around that paradox. Wrap your head around that paradox. Now I want to unpack just a couple implications for this. First, personally. Personally, what this means is that he is perfect, he is holy, he is eternal, and yet he dwells fully inside us. No matter where we are, who we are, what we have done. It's not like God looks at us and says, well, you've committed 10 sins this month, so I'm knocking 10 things out of my fullness. And when you clean yourself up, you get a little more fullness. That's not the paradox. The paradox says, all of me in my messiness is united with all of God in his holiness. Always. All the time. And I think that some of us, we don't treat God this way. We treat God in such a way that says, when I am good enough, when I believe enough, when I am churchy enough, that's when I get the fullness of God. But friends, that's not the way it works. The fullness comes in. No matter what we have done or have not done. And it's just there. In the shrub. We are the shrub. Maybe we should just greet each other that way. Hey, I'm the shrub. Are you the shrub? Yeah, I'm the shrub. Because that's where God is. Uh, I just stumbled across this quote this, this week in my kind of devotion prayer time this morning. It's from a guy named Thomas Merton. He says it this way. It just struck me so powerfully and beautifully. Surrender your poverty. And acknowledge your nothingness to the Lord. Whether you understand it or not, God loves you. He's present in you. He lives in you. He dwells in you, calls you, saves you, and offers an understanding and compassion which are like nothing you have ever found in a book or in a sermon. I'll forgive him that last part. All the fullness of God, more loving than any human being could be, more powerful, more compassionate, more loving, more resourceful than any human entity is inside you right now. No matter what you've done. And life begins when you open yourself up to that reality. When you say, oh my gosh, he's here already. He loves me with a perfect love already. So how do I respond to that love? Well, I guess I just take a step forward and say, I don't understand it. I don't even always feel it. 
But something tells me, maybe just on faith, that it's there. I am the shrub with feet. And so I just start walking it out. The other implication is missional. The other implication has to do with how we do our business in the world. Because God is a God of infinite power, but infinite humility. He'll, he'll show up anywhere. He doesn't always have to be the powerful God. He doesn't have to be Yahweh the war hammer. He's like, no, I'll be in a shrub. And I'll send Moses. Let me, show, let me unpack this. Uh, let me, so I, I said before that my friend was waiting outside to see you too. And uh, they were touring on how to, how to dismantle an atomic bomb. If you bought the deluxe copy of the CD, you got a booklet that was illustrated and drawn in by Bono, the singer. And he starts the book with a quote from a guy named Robert Oppenheimer. Robin Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. And the quote from Oppenheimer is this, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which is what he said when he saw the first atomic bomb test. All right? At the back of the book was a quote from Gandhi that said, you must be the change that you want to see in the world. And then the way Bono constructed the book, those two uh, statements kind of merged and morphed until they met in the middle. And so on one hand, you had Oppenheimer saying, look, I've, there are destructive forces that I have just unleashed in the, unleashed in the world and I don't know how to fix it. And Gandhi's saying, you have to be the change that you want to see. So the theory is, uh, began to develop that Bono was trying to say something about how do you bring about change? How do you dismantle an atomic bomb? Well, if we had Yahweh the warhammer, we might say just Yahweh, just go blow it all up. But Yahweh is not like that. Well, let, me, let me play the opening track of the record one more time. Listen to this. Okay, I've been in bands a long time. You know, you know how to count in a band? You go one, two, three, four, right? So Bono counts the band in. And he says it like this. You think he says uno, dos, tres, cuatro. That would be the Spanish version of counting the band in. He doesn't say that. He actually says unos, which is not Spanish, dos, Tres, catorce. Unus is Latin. So it's kind of like, Bono, do you really not know how to count? So translated, uh, again, it is one, two, three, fourteen. So Bono, do you really not know how to count? You don't know how to count a band in after being in a band for 20, at that point, 20 plus years? That in combination with what's going on in this book, and Bono's trying to say something about how you change the world. Do you change the world with Yahweh, the Warhammer? Do you change the world with more power, more might, when God is infinitely powerful but chooses to inhabit a shrub? Bono seems to be asking, like, how do you do this? Well, let me tell you something. Latin, uh, the first major translation of the Bible was uh, outside of Hebrew, was done in Latin. So what someone said is like, wait a minute, if you look at unos, 
Old Testament, dos, second book of the Bible, tres, third chapter of that book, catorce, 14th verse of that book, what do you get? You get, I am who I am. You get Yahweh. And, and a, a, a Christian worship leader and artist asked Bono when this record came out, he said, so Bono, how do you dismantle an atomic bomb? And he said, you do it with love. You do it with love. The love that looks like Jesus who, if he was God, could have called down all manner of heaven and earth to correct everything that was going wrong, and instead, he goes to the cross. So missionally, what that looks like is that when we go out to do the things that God has called us to do, it is not just about coming with power, with might, because it's only going to go so far. What the God of infinite power and the shrub says is that sometimes love and compassion, and surrender, and sacrifice, and taking up your cross, that's actually the way you bring about change in the world. Because you know the world knows power. Do you know that? The world knows power. They know the language of power. They don't know the language of self-sacrificing love. So let me just ask us a couple questions. Questions just based on these implications. Have you been hiding from God? Is there, is there an attitude in your life that you're like, God is so good and I'm so bad, so I need to hide that away from God? Because God says, hey, I, I know all of those things and I'm not afraid of them and they don't inhibit me because all the fullness is in you already. So if you think there's a secret place that is too dark for God, there's not. He's there. What if God's very essence means that he's already here with you completely? What if it means that and all you have to do is respond to it? How would your life be different in two minutes when I'm done if that was the case? What if life isn't about making yourself uh, lovable, but it's just a response to a God that loves you already? What if that's what life is? On the exterior going out part, where does compassionate, self-surrendering love factor into the things that you do for God? Are you, just, are you just going after the things that God has called you to with an attitude of like, look, we're going to get this done and we're going to push through and it's going to be powerful? Or do you need to take a look at the fact that God surrenders all that and says it's really about love? And then related to that, is there any area of your life which you say, you know what? That's not the way I do my business. And I need to seek some forgiveness. Maybe there's another question that you have based on the paradox God. I don't know. But the fullness and the eternal nature of God is here inside us right now. 
And yes, God will, might, will say to you, you know what, there's some things that you should fix about your life, but not so I can love you. Just because it's a response to, I love you already, and I want better for you. He wants better for us. Amen? Let's pray.